Open your Bible to Luke chapter 2. We're going to read possibly the most familiar story um, ever. Luke 2, first 11 verses tell the story of, of the coming of the Savior. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Cornelius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judah, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in that same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That phrase might be the greatest written phrase ever in verse 10. Good news, great joy for everybody. That's what, that's what we celebrate this time of year. And there are very familiar tones, very familiar stories. But the reason why we come back to them is because of this declaration. This is, this is good news of great joy. It produces joy in the hearts of all who would receive it. Um, I, I don't know if you heard this, but last year, a song was written and published that was described as the happiest Christmas song ever written. That's pretty bold talk. If Bing was around, he might have something to say about that. But um, the song's called Love's Not Just for Christmas. And it's interesting when you consider how it was written. Um, it was written, unlike, I think, how songs are written. The songs are written by songwriters who have some kind of a thought, a passion, a, poet, a poetry to it, a musical to it. This was written from research and science. Um, so professors and musicologists in, at the Boston Conservatory of Berkeley got together and said, let's do a study on Christmas tunes and why they make us happy. And so they studied 200 plus songs of Christmas tunes and said, what are the common denominators? What are the things that make people have joy? And so they did their own little study and research. And out of that research, they wrote a song that they called the happiest Christmas song ever. And what they did was they took all the best parts of all these happy tunes and put them in one song and said, well, there you go. There you have it. Uh, so they concluded that what we need to hear is something in a major key in 4-4 timing uh, the subject needs to be somewhere around love. Sleigh bells are good. Do sleigh bells. Uh, 115 beats per minute. You've got the perfect happy song. And, it, and the song's pretty good, by the way. Um, but, but however, I, I found fascinating was that they had an innate desire to even write a song about joy in the first place. Like, who cares? I mean, you might have an answer to that, but honestly, they could have written about anything. Why, why did they pick the subject of what makes us happy or what brings joy to people? I would suggest to you that the human longing for joy was so obvious they didn't have to give a definition or an explanation to it. Everyone, oh yeah, of course we want that. 
So, so that just hovers in the background. Like the desire for joy and happiness seems to be universal. And so them just to write that direction, everyone didn't even question. That makes sense. The other thing I found fascinating was the only thing they, they had to use was happy man-made triggers to write a happy, joyful song. Right? They, they didn't have anything in the song. You, if, you, if you listen to the song, you go, well, that's, that's great. It's cool. Complain the background. But all they did was study what made people smile. And so there were tempos and keys and and different things like that. Is, is happiness, by the way, that easy? <laughs> if I just find the happy triggers for you and, and I put it all together in one little thing for you, you'll find your joy and happiness? We, we know that's kind of foolish. I suppose if, if you might come to that conclusion if you studied us for a while, though, to be fair, if you just watched us behave and watched us react to things, you, you could make the conclusion like, well, that's what they want. That's what they do. Well, they, they do that all the time. They pursue their own version of happiness and use these man-made triggers to get there. So we're here this morning to talk about this Christmas story and specifically the line that the angel declared to the shepherds. Good news. And this wonderful thing, great joy. <laughs> what is joy? Where, where do we get it? Where do we find it? Why did the angel seem to be? That's the conclusion to the coming of Christ. Why is this matter? In Paul's letter to the Philippians in, in chapter 4, verse 4, he said, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. Some writers have described Philippians, that letter, as the epistle of joy. Because Paul mentions that idea of rejoicing or joy like 16 to 20 times in that one small little book. And what makes that fascinating is if you understand the context with which Paul is writing in Philippians, you go, well, wait, that doesn't make any sense. Because Paul is in jail. He's on the front end of going to his death. So, so that doesn't fit at all, the narrative of where you find joy. And by the way, he's in joy being rejected by his people, being accused of things and the authority in the church and all that kind of stuff is in jeopardy. He's under high stress. And so none of the circumstances seem to fit with him saying, rejoice. Like it's delusional, it almost sounds like, okay? So Paul is preaching this joy in prison. And then he commands us to rejoice always. He didn't say, hey church, by the way, it'd be nice if you ever got around to it that you might rejoice. He, he didn't suggest at all that it was a good idea if we did or that we should take some classes and learn how to rejoice. He didn't suggest that at all. He just commands it. He says, the Lord is the source of our joy. You have the Lord always, so always rejoice. And he implies here in this passage that, that joy is the normal demeanor of, of a Christian. Okay, now I've got to split this because I don't know who's here today. When I say Christian, you might just think someone who says, I go to church. That's not what, that's not what all what Paul thinks of that term. Christian means follower of Christ. It means the lordship of Christ. It means that you've recognized your need in sin and depravity, and you've come to God's grace and mercy to receive forgiveness for sins. You actually believe that Jesus died in your place and rose again to give you life. Now, that's a Christian, okay? You can go to church, and that doesn't make you anything. So just to make certain we know what we're talking about here, Paul says to the person who confesses Christ in that way that the normal demeanor is joy to those who follow Christ. And he commands that attitude with the same strength of all the other imperatives he gives in scriptures. But that isn't how most of us think about joy, is it? Most of us think of joy simply as a byproduct of circumstances. Joy follows something, right? It isn't uh, an action to engage in. 
But that's the point, I think, that Paul is making in Philippians, that it's a mindset, not a circumstances. It would be ridiculous if Paul said otherwise. If somehow joy was connected to circumstances, this is how his commands would sound. Go and be successful, always. And again, be successful, I say. He would say, go and be healthy always. And again, stay healthy always. Go and have money and lots of money and have lots of money always. His instructions would have sounded totally different if it was directly connected to circumstances, but he didn't attach it all to those things. He attached it to Christ. And all things include all the messy stuff. And so we've got we to look at joy and we've got to look at joy through the angle of the mess. So we have just finished this series, This Is Us. And we were trying to be really honest about what's normal to mankind. Disappointment, discouragement, depression, anxiety, distance from God, all the things that are common to man. And we were, we were really honest about that. Um, but I want to be honest about this too. It is not a pass because those are common experiences to say, well, then I'm going to wait for them to change to find joy. Paul commands our attitude here. And we want to see why and how in just a second. So here's the reality, and you already know this. I bet you could do a better job than I can. If, if what this thing was was about circumstances being of such quality that joy would be the result, you know you've even tried. You can work your tail off and not be able to close the deal. So somehow your effort didn't produce it. You can take care of your body. You can go to the gym. You can take supplements. You can do whatever you do. Drink water all day long and still get sick, right? Those things happen to us. And Paul says the attitude of joy is something that we can control. It's an approach to life rather than a reaction to life. Does that make sense? That's how he puts it. So just remember that in the context of where Paul's writing it, he seems to be the poster child for what he's talking about. I'm in prison, I'm suffering, I'm rejected, I'm about to die, joy. So he sits outside a category of normal for us, and yet he is the depiction of getting Christ to such a level that it is our new normal. Make sense? So why is it a challenge for us? Paul, Paul knew what I think we all confess but sometimes forget in our circumstances, Paul knew that friendships with God is the only source of joy. I suppose if that's all you heard, you don't need to hear anything else. You want to know where joy is found? You have to be right with God. Here's how Peter said it. Paul would agree with Peter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of, Christ, of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you what? Rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not know, now see him, you believe in him. And what? Rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Somehow, the joy in conclusion to the gospel is so great, so grand, you don't have words to describe it inexpressible, glorious, ridiculous, I can't tell you how wonderful joy. 
And you notice in this whole narrative that Paul, or Peter laid out for us, although you've had to endure various trials, multicolored, multifaceted bur- burdens in your life, you still rejoice. So we see that's the instructions of scriptures that joy sources friendship with God. I, uh, I don't know if you noticed, but theaters around us, at least the Harkins by my house, is playing uh, on Saturdays Christmas, like classic Christmas movies. Did you know this? Yesterday, they played one of my favorite all-time movies, It's a Wonderful Life, at 10 o'clock. In fact, if you're a Christian, you should see that movie. Um, it's one of my favorite movies. I, I've seen it like 100 times in my life, and I cry in that movie. So... Um, You could say the problem is me, and I'm okay with that. But there was an interesting little thing that I just noticed yesterday that I I probably have glanced over. And it might be because it's the first time I ever saw it in a theater, and I could really hear the sound was up, and this was cool. So you guys, how many of you have seen the movie, by the way? Wow, not very many of you. Um, So let let me tell you the premise of the movie. The the movie is about a guy, just a guy, George Bailey. He's just living, he's kind of living stuck in a home, in a town, in a place that he didn't want to be. And he wanted to get out and see the world and things, circumstances, responsibilities, his affections kept him from doing what he wanted to do. So he's just raising a family, being a guy, you know, doing a job. And he got into circumstances where he lost money and the accusation would be that he embezzled it and then the law was going to come after him, prison might be the result or whatever. And he freaks out, he freaks out, and he's terrified that his life is over. And so he starts to think to himself, maybe it'd be better if I died. Well, that ain't right. Maybe it's better if I wasn't ever born. So he goes down this trail. His guardian angel allows him to experience that. And he has a season where he goes back to the same town, to the same people he grew up knowing, and none of them recognize him, only to conclude, man, my life wasn't so bad, and I want to live again. You guys know that? That's, that's the story, Okay. And the whole thing concludes this wonderful moment. They're in, the, they're in the home, his home, and the whole town shows up, and they're giving him money to pay back this debt, and they're giving him stuff, and they're all having a kumbaya moment, okay? And at one point, if that's just where the movie ended, you would go, well, that's the conclusion. That's where you find happiness and joy. You just have to realize you have an okay life. <laughs> and then they sing a hymn. Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And there's a line in the hymn that doesn't fit at all with the narrative of the movie. Because what the hymn says is God and sinners reconciled, joyful, all ye nations rise. That phrase right there is counter to having a blessed life that you just didn't recognize. And that's the theme of this gospel narrative. I don't know if I could fix your life. I'm certain I can't. And I don't know if you're ever going to have a life of which you're going to say, it produces all the joy I need. Here's what I do know. The source of ultimate joy is that you have been reconciled with God because there was a war going on. There was a distance between you and God. This willful rebellion and the consequence was unbearable. Separation from God, punishment forever, miserable. So so when the hymns say that we've been reconciled, you, you have found the source, the true source of joy. You have now a friendship with God. Joy's only source, and I'm not exaggerating, is our salvation. It's our peace with God. Our brokenness has been healed in Jesus. It is our huge chasm that exists between sinful man and holy God, this unbridgeable, unbridgeable space. God's standard of excellence and perfection and holiness, and I can't even get out of the blocks. And he bridged it by his own life. He made me holy by his holiness. He drapes me in his robes. He grants it by faith through grace. That's what he does. This insurmountable debt that I have stacked up in my life that I'm gonna have to give account for totally and completely 
paid for. Jesus hung on the cross and said, it's finished. It's complete. It's settled. It's no more. (laughs) You want to find peace? That's the source. Somebody I'm convinced in here needs to hear this today. True joy only comes one way. It's in a relationship with Christ, not in circumstances and not in techniques. I mean, I love you, and I would try my hardest I could to give you whatever you thought you needed, but it wouldn't work. It just wouldn't work. What you need is only what God can give. And it's in a relationship with him. In a room like this, there's always those who know and those who don't know. And if I suppose we just stop now and your mind wanders, please just let it wander on this one point. If you walked in here and you would confess of your own heart, I know Jesus, but I don't know Jesus. I mean, the the distance between knowing him, assent, and knowing him, belief, it looks like 12 inches on a human body, but it's an eternity without Christ. You need him. In fact, I would tell you, you want him. You're just lost looking for him in all the wrong places. True joy is found in a relationship with him, not in circumstances. Listen to this. This is Jesus' own words. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now, this is Christ talking about belonging to him, abiding in him, being in him, because he's the source of our life, the source of our joy. He says, so I've loved you, abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Some versions say complete, overflowing, ridiculous. Just think about it. It's it's the spilling over of joy. Not just enough to get you by. Not skimping kind of joy. Ridiculous kind of joy. That's what Jesus said. You belong to me, you get it all. You get the full joy. So the source, the source is Christ And I need you to think about this this morning, church. I don't know what your story is. And if we go back to the last series and you saw your life in one of those depictions of depression, discouragement, anxiety, disappointment, and you go, well, that's me. That's that's kind of my ongoing lifestyle. Then I need you to do this today. I I want you to think about the joy that is already yours in Christ. In Christ, what's already yours. I'm not wise enough to know the circumstances, but I am smart enough to read and know the truth. And the truth says that this abiding in Christ, this being in Christ is the fullness of all joy. You understand? Okay. And joy comes from knowing that you're loved by God more than you could possibly dream. This joy is, is the shame of the past and the present and the future being lifted, the stain of this sin being covered, the foolishness of this rebellion, this war that exists between God and me has been brought to nothing. It's now peace between him and, and me. Forgiven of all of it. Knowing that we're forgiven. This uh, Christmas, we're gonna sing lots of songs. But I bet if I said, you pick t- the top three songs you wanna sing, this would be on one of them. Joy to the world. We're gonna sing that one. Right, joy to the world. We could do that right now without lyrics because we're so familiar with it. Maybe to some of you, those words sound very strange, like you can't sing them. I don't want to sing joy to the world because it's not joy in my world. They don't reflect how you feel. Those words don't. 
Maybe you would even say that I want to rejoice, I just don't know how. Maybe you would say, I envy Paul's attitude, but it isn't my experience. Maybe you'd like to be honest that way. So, so I think it's worth kind of finding the reasons why. If peace with God is the source of all joy, full joy, ridiculous joy, and we struggle to sing joy to the world because we're still seeing life through our circumstances, we have to start with this. And I'm not trying to be hard. I'm just got to be honest with you. Some of you need to recognize the fact that you might not believe in Christ at all. Again, you might know him, but you don't know him. The mental ascent doesn't get you anywhere but responsible, not saved. So, it's possible that we don't know the joy of the Lord because we don't know the Lord of joy. Isn't it possible? Isn't it possible that the only source of joy is the one I don't know? Therefore, it explains its absence. There's many of us who have a great relationship with the church. That's why we come. I'm hanging out. I'm in a small group, but I, but I don't uh, have a good relationship with Christ. So, you trust in your own goodness or somehow this thought that if you try to build your good pile, it'll outweigh your bad pile and God will have to deal with you. And therefore, you can't manufacture joy. It just can't happen for you. So let me just say it simply and quickly. If joy is elusive to you, then you have to do one thing. You have to check your heart. Don't be afraid of it. Check your heart. Do you have sin that is left undealt with? Do you have a need a problem, a sin, an inability that you haven't gone to Christ with? Have you trusted in his work alone for your salvation? That's all I'm asking you to do today. Possibly the rest of us, let's, let's, let's look at why it might be a little bit evasive for us. There, there's a potential that we're confusing joy and happiness with having life go our way, and that's why joy is ultimately elusive to us. Uh, obviously, we live in a world that says joy equals pleasant experiences, Right? That's how we would define it. That's how people would pursue it. That's why people do what they do and live how they live. Remember what the Apostle Paul said in Philippians 4. This is what he said, and I'm going to add to what he said. He said, rejoice always. <laughs> and then he adds this, which seems even more ridiculous, and be anxious about nothing. Come on. <laughs> nothing? I'm anxious about lunch. <laughs> nothing? Yeah, just, just always be joyful and don't worry about anything. That's his command here. Seems absurd to command it that simply. And yet, and yet, he has some power behind his words because he has some credibility. This is also Paul. Three times I was beaten with rods. And if you understand the beating of the Romans for offenses, it was 39 minus one unto death, meaning you were on the edge Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I was stoned. A night and day I was adrift at sea on a frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in a city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship. Though many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from all these other things, there's the daily pressure of me and my anxiety for all the churches. If all he said was the last phrase, that's enough for me. To carry the weight of all the churches, to carry the, the spiritual whereabouts and the concern for the hearts of all the people would, would break a man. And he's carrying that, and he's, they're trying to kill him at the same time. That is the man who said, rejoice always and be anxious about nothing. Obviously, we've talked about this, but there are going to be times when you're discouraged and you're disappointed when you wake up and the sun just doesn't go 
far enough in the sky. There's going to be times where you're sick and in need. You have not enough money to meet your bills, that you're hurt. There's going to be times where your friends and family fail you or on and on it goes. And I would suggest to you, as bad as this sounds, that's part of the human experience. But here's the truth for those of us who trust in Christ and believe in his kingdom come. This is what we know. Tough times make us want to see what the Father is up to. They're not meant to destroy us. He's doing something. I'm, I'm certain I don't know what, always. But because he's good, I know where it ends. Christians understand something fundamental, that God is writing his story, not my story. If it was my story, then I suppose I could have some expectations that everything worked out to my happiness. But since he's writing his story about our ultimate good and his ultimate glory, then my good would include things I wouldn't choose. Because I don't see everything, and I don't know everything, and I'm certain I've got lots of log jams and lots of deficiencies, and I can't see this, and I can't see that, but he sees everything crystal clear. And so, therefore, he explains our life. Someday all the pieces will come together. Someday we'll say, someday we will say it was all good. Now, joy might seem impossible, but I'll tell you why. I think it's because we're so prone to use artificial efforts. I mean, you and I are just kind of culturally raised to use artificial things to produce some kind of joy. And here's what you found out if you're old enough. It don't work. It never works. It teases you like it does. It tells you before you get there it's worth it. It tells you in it it's worth it. Afterwards you might even have a little afterglow and then it crushes you. Right? Come on church, amen to that? That's the story of our own artificial efforts. Our, in other words, our flesh is an idol factory. We are told in our flesh this warring part with the spirit of God in us that I should get something, buy something, have someone, get it now. That's what my flesh says. And I can pursue those things. And somehow I'm convinced that if I do that, I'll find joy. But you need to understand something. We've said this enough from here, this pulpit, that you probably already know this, but you and I were not made to be satisfied with such small things. In fact, I would tell you that God's love for you is so great, so grand, that he will frustrate your plans to find joy anywhere else but him. Because if, if you, as the father, wanted the ultimate gift for your child, and your child kept picking the wrong gift, like you got a meal at the table and he's eating in the sandbox, you would tell him, okay, son, come over here. It's called turkey. And God frustrates the plans of his children who pursue joy apart from him so he can get us to the ultimate joy. And so we're left kind of going, oh, I tried that, it left me empty. I went after that, it didn't work. In fact, it left me in worse condition than I started. All of it is a wonderful plan of God to get us to the ultimate joy. Why, why is this pursuit of joy so difficult for us? And I would suggest to you that it's because we can't see the big picture. Paul, the Apostle Paul, again, using him as our champion, he has a tenacity for the big picture. I'm not certain I'll ever get there, but this is how Paul describes everything. He said in Philippians 1, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Well, that's big picture. I don't care about this life. I don't care about living. In fact, dying's better. Anybody say that's big picture? He said, I count everything as a loss because it's the passing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Everything is a waste of time compared to knowing Christ. Everything is. Paul saw the big picture. And sometimes we're so close to our own issues that we miss what God is doing. 
and we have this thing called tunnel vision. And we see these trials and we see these pains and we see these difficulties and we depressions and the, and the challenges as something to get out of in a hurry. Like that's the problem. Get that out of here. Get, it, get away from me. Rather than the way God sees it, it's a beautiful way that he makes me like Jesus. Sometimes the no's, we see them as failure. God sees them as leading to our good. Sometimes we see our loneliness as how somehow God has abandoned us rather than the way God chooses to draw us. Right? If your dance card is full, I know what you're not doing. You're not, you're not going for him. Got enough going on. I'm busy. I'm out every night. I have friends. I, everything's good. And he's standing there going, okay, good. You want to talk about good? Sometimes we lose our perspective and so we lose our joy. I want to try to keep our response to this reality pretty simple. So let me ask you a question. I think it has an obvious answer. Do you want joy? Then I have one simple thing to say to you. Stay close to the source. If you really want joy, then you have to get close to the source of the joy. David um, probably understood this in a way that that, uh, most of us don't. And he suggests that it wasn't that you uh, find joy by running and exhausting yourself by running away from the things that bring you less than the joy you want. He suggests that it's running to the Savior. Psalm 16, there's a wonderful outlay of all all the realities we've talked about this morning. Let me read these kind of out of order to, to make the point. Psalm 16. David says, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. You understand that he understood right away the exclusivity of of God the Father and Jesus the Savior to be his source? He says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. The sorrows of those who run after another God simply multiply. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand and I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to shoal or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Here's what David knew. Here's what we've said this morning. In his presence is everything you want. Everything you want. If you want satisfaction, if that's the explanation for why you do all that you do, and all that you do hasn't met the desire for satisfaction, let me suggest to you that you go around your own versions of getting there and get to the source of joy because in his presence, in the proximity to God and his Savior, Jesus Christ, is fullness of joy. Again, the same idea that Paul had when he talked about inexpressible, glorious joy, ridiculous joy. And I would tell you this, and I'm not lying here, That doesn't mean that all these things we've just talked about will magically go away. That doesn't mean that for you, the sun is different every morning and all the particulars of your burdens go away. It simply means that true, eternal, Jesus-focused, Jesus-centered joy, the joy that Paul can command, is yours in full form in proximity to Jesus. Do you understand? Make sense? Well, we gotta pray for help, don't we? Let's do that. God, I thank you for Christ our Savior. 
I thank you that he has offered his life a ransom for us. And by his wounds, we are healed. God, I thank you that uh, you understand more than anyone understands the difficulty of, of how we see life and how we experience life from time to time. And God, we also confess there's such a variety of ways that we experience it. Some, it's much harder than others. And yet, here we have this absolute truth from Paul to us to rejoice always, to experience the fullness, the inexpressible fullness of your joy and glory. So God, I'm certain it's not complicated. It's, it's directly connected to our peace with you through Christ our Savior. So God, give us focus and clarity. When all the circumstances and all the things in our life that don't go our way try to say a bigger, better word than Jesus is enough, I pray the Holy Spirit that you would just scream for us. That you would shout in our souls that full joy is in Christ. Peace with God is where joy is found. God, for your church, we, we want to see these commandments, obey these things. We want to be the demeanor of the saved. So, God, we pray for the power to see that happen. And we're thankful that it's already certain. It's not up for grabs and it's not yet to be decided. It is already finished in Christ. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So, God, I pray we leave here with that truth, like cemented in our minds and our souls. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen.